Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors has everything you need to keep your ride or die alive. From superchargers, brakes, exhaust kits, and more, 122 million parts, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home the win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. Welcome to the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Megan Schuster. I will be your host today. And joining me all the way from Jeddah to preview the Saudi Arabia Grand Prix is Scott Mitchell-Malm of The Race. Scott, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it's my third time uh, coming to Saudi Arabia. It's um, It still remains a unique experience, um, for, for better or worse. But um, I, I, lo- I part of me does like coming to tr- uh, places like this because... I feel like at the very least, it's always worth sort of seeing it with your own eyes and experiencing it yourself. I mean, I'm hoping it's not as dramatic as last year when we had a missile strike fairly close to the circuit and you could see something going up in flames in the distance. So hopefully a bit more relaxed this weekend. <laughs> Fingers crossed uh, all the way around on that front for sure. And and we'll get into all of that too, talking about, you know, kind of the safety and security measures that they're attempting to put in place this year. And, and hopefully, like you said, we'll have a much less dramatic running this time around. And I wanted to talk to you, Scott, for a number of reasons. First, because, you know, you are in Saudi and can help us get a better understanding of the track, the conditions, kind of, you know, how drivers are feeling about returning to this track for the first time since everything happened last year. But also because you've written really wonderfully over the past couple of weeks about some of the teams who have both come out of the gate underperforming like McLaren and also some of the ones who've surprised us a bit throughout testing and, you know, in Bahrain last week. So before we delve into the race itself, I kind of wanted to hear what some of your biggest team-specific takeaways were from the last few weeks, you know, whether that be Aston Martin's kind of somewhat surprising success, um, McLaren's developmental woes, the Red Bull versus Ferrari battle that sort of wasn't just, yeah, kind of what were your initial thoughts after last week or two weeks ago, I guess? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, I, it was in a way, it was a little bit like worst fears realized at the front because through testing, we kind of had this picture emerging where we thought oh no like the Red Bull is just so far in front um and then 
Fernando and Aston Martin sort of took us on a little bit of a slightly misleading journey through the Bahrain weekend. And we were thinking, oh, maybe we've got it wrong and this is actually going to be really cool. <laughs> um, and then it just, Max just walked it anyway. Um, so that was um, it, that was disappointing in a way because it, it just, not because it was a surprise, but because it confirmed those those worst fears. And that there's an element of, I think my sort of main takeaways would be, I'm very disappointed in Ferrari and Mercedes. I feel like they've let mm-hmm. Formula One and Formula One fans down by not doing a good enough job. That I don't feel like they took, I feel like they just didn't set big enough targets. Uh, not because they're, you know, unambitious or anything like that. It's just you, you don't know what you don't know. And I think they thought that they were going to make a big enough step over the winter, but they probably underestimated just how much of a gain that Red Bull would make. Um, that mm. car went on a serious weight loss program and they've just been able to find quite a lot of performance. So disappointed from that point of view with the big teams, Aston Martin was a nice silver lining to that though, because I think I think we did expect something quite fun from them um, this season, but nowhere near as, as big a leap as throwing themselves into top three contention in terms of podium results, but also top three team contention, you know, beating Ferrari on, on, on merit. So, that was the that was the big silver lining. Um, whether or not that can continue into this weekend is something that I guess we'll um, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Aston Martin a bit. They brought in Dan Fallows from Red Bull last year to oversee their car design ahead of this year. Fallows has said that this car is basically ninety five percent, I believe, different from what they were running last year. It's obviously drawn many comparisons to the RB eighteen, which has been uh, interesting and a little bit contentious here and there. But what do you see as being sort of the biggest influences behind Aston Martin's jump in production? Is it just some sort of the similarities to the Red Bull or do you think they're running something different that has helped them go from, you know, a seventh place finisher last year into a car that we're talking about potentially finishing as a contender? Yeah, I think um, I think actually the Red Bull comparisons did them a little bit of a disservice. I know that Red Bull loved to jump on that bandwagon. You might remember (laughs) last year when... um, when, when Aston brought that massively upgraded car to Spain last year and it was so obviously influenced by the Red Bull. And then, so Red Bull then had like cans of the green Red Bull drink on the on the pit wall as <laughs> a love, brilliant bit of um, marketing slash trolling. Um, mm-hmm. that, uh, th- th- they, they do like doing that. And I think Christian Horner, Sergio Perez, I don't know if Verstappen did, but certainly those, those two, Checo and Christian, made jokes around the... Uh, post race about you know nice to see free Red Bulls up there and stuff like this, but does <laughs> right. it, it does Aston a little bit of a disservice because that yes there are some Red Bull design cues. It, nearly every team on the grid has gone down that route because it's the best car of last year. You'd be kind of I say stupid. You'd be Ferrari or Mercedes not to copy <laughs> what Red Bull are doing. Um, so there are absolutely elements of that, but there are also elements of the you know the Ferrari side pods. You can see some inspiration on the way the Aston Martin looks. Um, it's got that really interesting sort of water slide style effect through the, the the back of the side pod. It's got some Mercedes design cues at the front of the car, around the front wing mm. and, and, and another element. So I think the the best thing I'd say about Aston Martin is it's almost like the amalgamation of different ideas that they've done a really mm. good job at because they've recruited so aggressively. And Dan Fallows is the, the the headline one, and this is the first car that's kind of been sort of blessed by his touch from the very beginning. Sure. If he's this kind of like the next Adrian Newey, then this is the first car that he has overseen. You know, that that's the kind of 
hyperbole that gets sort of thrown around in 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 the paddock. So mm-hmm. that's very exciting. But you've got loads of other people have come into those team into that team. Um, for example, the deputy technical director Eric Blandin is from Mercedes. Um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of his name, but uh, Luca Fabato came in. I think he was Alfa Romeo's chief of aerodynamics or a role similar to that. And they have lots of other people within the workforce that have come in from other teams. And I think what Aston Martin's done really well, having underachieved in the last year or two, because they mm-hmm. should have done a better job with last with last year's car, even though they're waiting on a new wind tunnel and everything else, they should have done a better job last year. So there's some low-hanging fruit to find there because they were just underperforming. But then they've sure. done a really good job of then going, right, okay, so you understand this, you understand this, you've looked at this, you've tried to develop this idea. And when, you've, when you're so early in a brand new set of rules and different way of working aerodynamics and blah, blah, blah I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. you have so much access to different information and ideas. And then they've done a very, very good job of then distilling that down into one concept that works globally and that's what the AMR 23 is so I think that's I think that's kind of the there's there, there's no silver bullet there there's no one thing that they've gone aha they've absolutely nailed that they've just done a really good job of making a, a car that works and the big question I have with that is when they then have to come up with their own ideas can mm. can that team do that you know are they just very good at for lack of a better way of putting it just copying everyone else really well. <laughs> can, can they do it themselves? That's that's the difference between getting to the front of the midfield or even better like they have and doing what Rebels done, which is blow everybody away. I think that kind of leads into what is maybe the biggest question for me about Aston Martin over the rest of the season is, you know, they're going to need to continue to upgrade, of course. And Fernando Alonso has said that the car could continue to look even more different as they roll out, you know, different packages throughout the season. But do you feel like they have kind of thrown all of their eggs into this early development basket and in, in into the car that they have right now? Or is there enough left in the tank that as Red Bull continues to advance, as you know Ferrari and potentially Mercedes start to figure things out throughout the season, can Aston Martin keep pace? Or is this sort of the peak for them maybe this year? Well, well it, it should be the peak. Like if if everyone does the best job that they can with their resources, Aston Martin shouldn't be beating Mercedes and Ferrari. It probably shouldn't be beating Alpine and McLaren. It just mm. it shouldn't. It doesn't have as good resources. You know that team doesn't fit into its current factory at the moment. Like that, it's so mm-hmm. it's you know it's been this underdog for for so long. And yeah, they got all the money that they want to throw at it now at the budget cap, and they've got some really brilliant people in there. But they still have fundamentally limited resources. So if everyone nails it over the rest of the year, Aston, they should only really have the potential to be maybe the fifth or sixth team. So they are Mm. overachieving. And when you look at it like that, I kind of feel like, right, it's time to make hay, the sun's shining because you've got this opportunity now, you've started on the front foot, you've got a driver in Alonso who is just clear, like it's ridiculously annoying how age-defying he is. It just like, <laughs> I'm I'm like a decade younger than him and it makes me feel terrible about myself because I'm like, <laughs> I've peaked and you're still like at that level in, in your mm-hmm. 40s. Um, so so they should be, they, they, they should be absolutely hitting it really, really hard now. Maybe they won't get another podium this year, but I think the flip side to that is, what Alonso said about, I think he called the car, I said it's like really basic still, which I thought was just classic Fernando, just being, <laughs> just 
just being a just being that kind of person that just like says something it's a really good soundbite and he just can't quite help mm-hmm. himself of course that car's not basic it, it's it's far <laughs> from basic but there is still um there's still quite an aggressive development plan that they have so it's not like shall we say Haas or Alfa Romeo last year sure you know these guys that started the season fourth or fifth fastest cars because they just got the jump on the bigger teams and then the natural order was restored as the season went on I think Aston Martin should have a higher potential than that and that's kind of what's really exciting about this project and and where they're at because where they are now is kind of where I thought they would be at the end of Alonso's time with the team so the mm-hmm. fact that they're starting it with him just like punching in a podium at the first race is kind of like, all right, cool. Let's see where you can go. <laughs> I love to see Fernando Alonso happy watching him drive around the the grid in Bahrain and and hearing him come on the radio just toward the end of the race and say like, you know, thank you for this car. Such a joy to drive. Hearing him happy, sending positive radio messages. I was like, what year are we in after the last few with Alpine with all of his frustrations? Well, we're just, just in the first fun. year. It's just the first year of Fernando in a new team. He's just like, he's so <laughs> the good honeymoon at honeymoon like, phase. Yeah, exactly. Lays it on real thick. Oh, I love everybody. This is brilliant. Isn't this great? <laughs> and you're just kind of waiting. Like, is it going to take six months? Is it going to take three years? When are you going to fall out with everybody? Well, I can't wait to watch that happen. If it happens, maybe, maybe it'll continue to be positive. Who's to say? But uh, regardless, he is a hoot to watch always. Um much less of a happy experience in Bahrain was Ferrari. And and you've talked about this a little bit and written about it this week. They had, you know, much less pace than Red Bull overall. Obviously, the reliability issue that forced Charles to retire early. They also had some kind of interesting early strategy and tire decisions, especially at the end of Q3 and qualifying. I've been trying to figure out exactly what thinks it is this year, if it truly expects to compete with Red Bull, if it feels like it's more trying to hold off, you know, Mercedes and Aston Martin. Now we're getting reports in the Italian media that there's some sort of discord within the team, not necessarily related to Fred Vassar, the team principal, but, you know, even higher up within the organization. Rumors that they may be losing some of their sort of technical and strategy folks in, you know, the coming year. Obviously, you know, all of that is sort of speculation at this point or seems to be. But where do you think Ferrari really stands this year and, and what do you make of some of these these early rumors and reports and and where they kind of go from there? Yeah, well, as, as I mentioned before, I am disappointed that they haven't made a, a, a bigger step. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, it's um, it all sounds a little bit more chaotic than I thought it would after one race. Um, even right, by Ferrari, right. even by Ferrari standards, it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, this implosion has started early. What's going on? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, w- whenever whenever there's noise like this around Ferrari in the Italian media, there's kind of there's always a reason for it, and you're always trying to work out right what's the reason. Is it someone who's left the team that's in a mood and basically mm. just wants to you know go out lobbing grenades and causing trouble? <laughs> is it someone who's still there that is? you know, identifying potential areas of concern and wants to sort of leak this out so that they take it seriously within the organisation? Or is it just a misunderstanding where there are some grains of truth to what has been written, but it's been extrapolated or misinterpreted and overblown, dare I, dare I say it, from our colleagues in the the Italian press who who are generally very well connected and very knowledgeable people and like decent people. They're not, they don't throw Ferrari under the bus just because, you know, they're, they're being 
nasty pieces of work or anything like that. It's just, <laughs> it's just Ferrari is so unique and it, it has this unique pressure from the media. I kind of see it as this organisation that it doesn't even have to be in crisis. It just needs to have the press suggest that there might be a bit of a problem. And then it just, and it becomes like this um, self-fulfilling prophecy of doom mm. where they go, well, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're writing that we're in trouble, so we must be in trouble. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you just, like th- there's stories in the past of like, newspapers like Gazetta being handed out within the factory and stuff like that. Like the, this obsession is is really unhealthy. So the the stories that came out last week, I think were problematic for Ferrari and something that Fred, I really impressed by the way he's dealt with it. But first mm. of all, because I, I, I love the, I love the fact that he's thrown a bit of shade at the Italian media because they've, they've sort of come at him and he's just gone, well, all right, fine, I'll do an interview in French with Otto Hebdo and I'll speak to my guys. <laughs> and then that's it. You, you want to trade blows, like I'll go and do it in my language. And you just end up with this situation where things are being translated like twice. And it's just, mm. but I love that he just went, I'm not having this. I could, he could have just waited, got into the Saudi weekend, started to be asked questions on TV or even on Sunday yeah. after the race. And he's just gone, no, I need to combat this now. And actually, as we sit here and record this, actually about, an hour ago, there was a, a few of us had a, a, a Zoom call with Fred before this weekend. Mm. Um, he, it's been set up as, oh, we'd like to do this sort of semi-regular preview thing. And I, I kind of feel like it was like, oh, but it might also be a little bit strategic to do it now because you're obviously trying to fight a few fires. Um, yep. And there was, a yep. line, there was a line from that that was really interesting where he said um, he doesn't mind the pressure, the attention, the whatever from the press. That's just Ferrari. Mm -hmm. His job is to keep everybody focused. His concern is that it goes into the workforce and it makes them distracted, paranoid, whatever. And he doesn't want that. So I think that's why he's come out now and said a few things that, you know, oh, this has been overblown. This isn't quite the reality. So if I were to summarize where Ferrari's at, I think it's not as doomsday as it was portrayed a few days ago. Mm-hmm. There are if there mm-hmm. are people who have left that organization, people who I think were close to Mattia Bonotto and maybe were part of a slightly different Ferrari regime because they've got John Elkin, who's the the, the chairman, the big boss, and then they've got Benedetto Vigna, who is the CEO. But Vigna only came in in 2021, I think. So he's very much a new face. I think he's put a few noses out of joint. He doesn't do things the way some people maybe want them to do. So maybe mm-hmm. there's been this little bit of turnover of staff from people that were like, well, I was loyal to Mattia, so I'm walking. I don't like this new guy. It's nothing to do with Fred, I think. Sure, so sure. I, f- I kind of feel bad for the guy because he's like, he's been <laughs> in the job for like six or seven weeks. He's like, he's a, he's a nice guy. He's a smiley, loves to, he's a smiley guy, loves to like crack a few jokes, but he's easy to underestimate. I think he could do a good mm-hmm. job at Ferrari. It's just whether or not Ferrari is just going to be too Ferrari for him to do that job. (laughs) It is interesting, right? Because like you said, if you take the Ferrari job, you know what you're getting into, both with high expectations, with the Italian media kind of breathing down your neck. And I feel like one of the reasons that they brought Fred in was basically to just be the adult in the room and and to be able to kind of weather situations like this and to try to hold everybody together rather than you know, like like you said, these rumors spreading like wildfire throughout the team and getting everybody their hackles raised and making everyone nervous. And it, it sounds like he's, you know, at least currently doing that job and and trying to really, uh, you know, be there for for someone like Charles, who had a, a really rough week in Bahrain and and trying to just 
calm the waters a bit. Um, but I, I am curious how long that approach can kind of last if the car performance isn't there this year and if they're unable to to start to bring the fight to Red Bull. And I am wondering what you think about their prognosis for Saudi Arabia, if this is a track that maybe this, this car will be able to handle better than Bahrain with some of you know the tire degradation issues there and, and some of the other challenges that they faced in Bahrain. But I, I, I guess where, where do you kind of see them ranking among the teams heading into this weekend? I, I, would, I would be surprised if they got beat by Aston Martin. I mean, if they got beat by Aston Martin here and if they, or if they weren't the second fastest team here is probably the better way to say it, I think that would be a problem because I think Bar- mm-hmm. Bahrain did exaggerate some of Ferrari's weaknesses. Um, I do kind of feel like Red Bull were quite contained as well and we didn't really, that's a scary thing, we didn't really see what Max could do if he really wanted to. Like how much could he have won by if he just like let rip? Um, sure. But Ferrari, Ferrari had some specific issues there. I don't feel like they got the car in a great place. I think that they they were struggling from start to finish. Um, for like things like that, that tyre strategy with the saving the set in qualifying for Leclerc, Mm-hmm. Uh, however they want to paint it, I, I don't believe that was aimed at then trying to attack Red Bull on the Sunday with an extra right. set. It was it was just to make sure they had a, an extra set of the tyres they wanted because they knew that they'd come under pressure from Aston Martin and maybe Mercedes on on long run pace. So is that going to be removed now we're at Jeddah? That's, a, that's an interesting question. They, they've also, last year, the Red Bull was so fast on the straights and the, and the Ferrari mm-hmm. was a sitting duck. Um, so what they've done for this year's car is they've... Tr- taken away some of that cornering performance to make it quicker in a straight line and in Bahrain it felt like that balance hadn't quite worked out but Jeddah's a faster track so maybe it'll be better here I think Ferrari are optimistic um, and I know that they've got some upgrades I don't know how big but they've got some upgrades on on the car this weekend they want to bring some for uh, Australia as well so they're pushing very hard to improve the car I think they I think they accept that even though the car's working more or less as they expected it to they it's just not fast enough so mm-hmm. how that shakes out this weekend i don't know it's kind of interesting because obviously they've had this like they've had to weather this storm for a few days um with the off track stuff and it was all around the sort of basis of well let's get to jeddah because i think we'll be quicker there than than we were in bahrain but then if they come to this track and they're just where they were in bahrain then you're kind of mm. like ah that, <laughs> this this is a bigger problem than you've been letting on <laughs> <laughs> it will be very fascinating to see. And another team with perhaps bigger problems than they were letting on early in the year, uh, Mercedes. It was so fascinating to me to hear Toto come out, I think it was the night before Bahrain, and essentially say that they failed in the redesign new regulations that their the car strategy that they went with is just flat out not going to work and they basically have to start over from scratch. He and Lewis both seemed a bit defeated, even though Lewis, you know, had some pretty positive messages after the race. And it seemed like he got every bit of performance out of that car that is possible for that car. But they just seem really behind the eight ball. And that is, you know, very unlike Mercedes. And I, I'm curious if you see any sort of path for them to be successful this year or if you think that they're just sort of in a not full-on teardown mode but if they're really just focused ahead on developments for next year and and beyond to try and you know retain Lewis yeah I am I am a bit worried that we're 
it's not going to take long before you're in right off 2023 and just try to save 24 at this stage because mm-hmm. I've I was a bit worried last year early on when there was all this talk about oh, we've got lots of theoretical performance in this car we just need to unlock it we just need to make the car work and then, and then we're, we're going to find a second or a second and a half and there's so much performance in this car we just haven't tapped into the potential and I kind of thought like I I trust you. You like you've won. What is it? Like fifteen of the last sixteen championships that were available, or right. something like that. So it's kind of like, right. yeah, you're you're, you're you you get this more than I do. So you, if you have confidence, who am I to say that you're wrong? Mm-hmm. And they made decent progress through the year, obviously, but there would have absolutely been an element in the second half of the year of like Red Bull not pushing as hard with the twenty two car because they had the championships sewn up. So why would they? They the bigger project for them was 23 whereas Mercedes had to focus on problems for 22 otherwise they'd be limited in their understanding for this car now sure. we've started this season they've not done a good enough job in in understanding where the limit is on performance they might have exhausted the absolute potential of this package and maybe overestimated how good their idea of how to use and manipulate and maximise the aero of the ground effect cars so that it might be that they're absolutely getting the most out of what concept they've gone for. It's just not good enough. Like, it's not as high as the Ferrari or, and especially not the Red Bull. And I feel like that only crystallised in Bahrain. So just to try and put a time scale on it, um, I know we haven't talked about McLaren yet, but the reason McLaren started the season where it has is because of a decision they made three or four months ago. So the the car that will change McLaren's season, theoretically, will arrive in late April, which okay. is a... Uh, so, so that is something that they decided with, in terms of a development direction back in like October, November last year. And they will get that car in April. It's it's months. It's it's months and months to to turn that initial development direction into a, a real car that you know you've got enough development out of it. You you know you you know it's going to work. You know it's going to give you a lot more performance than the current package. If now the Mercedes thing might not necessarily take that long, but mm-hmm. why why shouldn't it take three, four, five months? And if that's the case, then obviously this season's done. Like it's it's absolutely right. done to them. But then it's a case of well how long is it going to take for them to actually work out what they've got done wrong? Because it t- it's taking McLaren f- five months, six months to go from, ah, we know what the problem is and this is how we're going to fix it. But mm-hmm. Mercedes aren't even at that point where they know what the problem is. They just know there is a problem. So how long is that going to take? And that's where <laughs> the worry for 24 comes in because mm-hmm. what if it takes them a month or two from now to really, really understand what they need to do and then they start working on it? I don't know like what kind of car they'll have by the end of this year and then what they'll be able to sign off for the start of 24. So they're in a much worse position than I think they were this time a year ago, Because which just sounds silly to say considering how disastrous their start to 22 was. But mm-hmm. at least in 22, they had a very specific problem. And you're like, okay, well, we need to fix that. Now they're just like, oh, damn, we, our car's just slow, <laughs> which is horrible. <laughs> That is a very rough place to be and uh, has me really worried for them and, and you know, for George, Lewis, all of that, what that means for Lewis going forward if if he decides he wants to stick around and, you know, kind of take the chance on 2024. 
I will be very interested to see what kinds of developments they make this year. And if we end up getting any sort of timeline from Toto about when they do sort of figure this this car out or figure out what, you know, their maybe new design is if they decide that this one is just one that they have to scrap entirely. Like it seemed like he was saying ahead of the first race, very concerning all around. And I, I did want to dive into McLaren a little bit because, you know, you wrote this week about sort of their their missed aerodynamic targets, you know, why their car has been so uninspiring and, you know, frankly, just difficult to drive. I know Lando gave a, a little bit of an interview before Bahrain when he was asked, I think, you know, is the car just slow or is it also hard to handle? And he said both, which is very, very unencouraging. What what specifically, I guess, got them into this mess? And are they targeting for that April update? I, I know they, they've been saying, I think it was ahead of the fourth race is when they really expect to get some pace, or at least that's what Zach Brown has been saying. But have they given any sort of specifics about what that upgrade package might look like? Yeah, so I think it's going to be quite a significant change to the floor, which is um, for these generations of cars is everything because it's the it's the way that that manipulates and ma- uh, maximizes the ground effect, um, which is so so powerful. So the floors on these cars, I mean, they were already insane before, but with these rule changes for last year, they just became these, the floors are massive. Like that, the thing that struck me when I was in Bahrain with for the test, not just the race, but it was so nice mm-hmm. to see the cars in person again and see them in three dimensions. And you're just like, these things are, in- they're, they're crazy. Like they're so <laughs> intricate and they're, they're it, it blows, blows my mind. And it does. So it doesn't surprise me that teams trip up because you're just like, well, yeah, obviously I look at this and think you get one tiny detail wrong. And suddenly this is all out of whack. So right. the, these floors are massive and they're also really sensitive. So small changes can have a big impact. And, on the McLaren problem basically comes down to when you see the the the, the outer edge of the floor, you can see that the they've all all the teams have got different versions of like they've got like little ripples in the sides of the, the floors and little cutouts. And um I will not pretend to know the ex- the exact details of this, but it, it's all about <laughs> um it's all about generating vortices and controlling airflow and manipulating crazy physics basically mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. when um when there was like this porpoising bouncing problem last year um there was this big effort to try and fix that for 2023 and one of the solutions to that was basically to raise the edges of the floor by 15 millimeters which sounds it's that's tiny it sounds so small and so insignificant so to me this is like the best and worst of F1 rolled into one thing. The best because it's like, it's this crazy, tiny, silly detail. And the worst because it's like, it's this such a silly thing to have suddenly changed everything. <laughs> but basically, when all of the teams, they raise their floors by 15 millimetres and they all lose performance because the floors are, and these cars, the lower they are to the ground, the more performance they create, basically. And then the, the job is basically to then tweak their designs to try and get that performance back. McLaren started to do that and then they were like we we can't get this performance back like what's going on and they basically mm-hmm. realized through this process that the way that they were were tweaking and playing around with the floor edge was basically just wasn't as good as the other teams they they didn't have as much of a command of it as the other teams did they had the wrong geometries and that just meant they were like ah we we need to go in a different design direction we need to work out how to do this differently and then we'll find a load of performance so what they basically got to 
in October, November last year was, right, we know that if we carry on developing this new direction, we will keep finding loads and loads of performance. But it's going to take months to get that to a point where we can have it on the car. So what they did was they locked in an older, less good version of the car to start the season with Mm -hmm. so that they could get all the parts made and tested and blah, blah, blah. And then they can work on this new, better direction in the background and get that out as soon as possible. So what they're starting the season with now is basically a slightly rubbish version of what they actually need for 2023. And then for Mm -hmm. Baku, which is the fourth race, as you mentioned, at the end of April... They should have these these upgrades on the car. I'm 99% sure we'll see a very different floor. And then the theory is all of the, I, mean, I think James Key, the technical director, said that they, like, it's been prolific, the amount of development gains that they've found in, in simulation. So basically, McLaren's like, this update comes along, it saves our season. That, that is as simple as that. But that's a lovely hypothesis. <laughs> whether that turns into reality or not, I think um, I think we'll probably de- determine whether or not Lando Norris is very, very happy or very, very sad. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at Ugg.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like... Can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. That is sort of my next question too is, you know, obviously that they're they're targeting these upgrades and and hopefully for them for their sake this all works out, but they've also been talking a bit about gearing up towards I want to say 2025 and and thinking that they might have a, a significantly better car in 2025 and that a lot of their development goals are centered around that and that has me a bit concerned for, you know, a team that has been toward the top of the midfield in recent years and has a young, many believed to be superstar driver in their midst in Lando Norris. And is he someone who is willing to wait around until 2025 for a car that, you know, could could be more of a contender? Or will he get frustrated and disgruntled by all of this waiting and all of these uh, 
you know, we'll we'll see in in a month or whatever if this car can compete. Um, just doesn't seem like something that I would expect him to be thrilled about. I guess. No, I, and I think that's just such a human reaction. I like. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us would be particularly happy if, like, if you're buying into this idea of um, this is a long term project, and in the long term, you, like, be patient. Great things are going to come. This is fantastic, and. That's fine if you buy into it, but you then also need to see some evidence along the way that that is going to get there. You need kind of proof of concept. And the problem for for Lando is he's he's put he's made this um he's bet on McLaren basically, um and there's just been backward steps since he's done that. You know, 2022 wasn't particularly good, um not for him. He he did a great right. job last season, um but the car obviously wasn't um they they underperformed. They only finished fifth in the championship. And then this season started even worse. And yeah, there are some, you know, lovely numbers in the wind tunnel and great reason for optimism longer term. But it's always longer term with McLaren at the moment. It's always, oh, we just need to wait for this. And well, the 2023 car will be good. We just need to wait for this. And then the 2025 car is going to be amazing. And it's kind of like, at some point, Lando's got to be sitting there thinking, how long can I kick this can down the road? And Mm -hmm. at some point, he needs that car now not in six months or in 18 months or or whatever. Right. So, and I can't imagine there's anyone out there that kind of can't relate to that. We've like, totally. it, must just be, it must be so frustrating, um, especially as, you know, he, there was interest from Red Bull at one, a couple of times throughout his career. I don't mm-hmm. feel like Lando is much of a like, what if kind of guy. I don't think he sits mm-hmm. there and just goes, oh, just damn, I should have signed. Why did I do this? Um, but I think he will have one eye on the future. And I'd be I'd be amazed if there isn't some mechanism for him to leave McLaren before the end of his current contract, if they underperform in a big way. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that's as early as this season, who knows? Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that McLaren is talked up being a top four team this year and believing they can get back top four in the championship. I think that is a bit of a hint to what they might need to do to keep Lando sweet. Yeah. It can't be easy to watch, you know, peers like Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc and George Russell and, you know, going to these top teams and having, you know, much more immediate success than Lando. I'm I'm sure that is a a tough pill to swallow for, like you said, for any of us. Um, Did anyone from the lower midfield stand out to you very much in Bahrain? I know Williams had a a bit of a surprise performance, finishing 10th and 12th. I think, you know, Pierre Gasly did about as well as he could have from where he started on the grid. And Alpine obviously had a a lot of issues with Esteban Ocon in Bahrain with all of his time penalties. But just anyone from that group that that you think kind of surprised in, in one way or another? I would say, and this might sound really, really cliche given the um, the platform and the audience, but like I, I went after the race weekend, I was really keen to write something about Logan Sargent. Mm. Um, not because I don't think he didn't surprise me. Um, not necessarily. Maybe, maybe he actually did a slightly better job than even I thought he'd do. But I, I followed him quite closely in Formula Two and, th- and thought, you know, the kid's good. I, I followed him in Formula Three as well, and. Mm-hmm. I really liked that he got picked by Williams because he was a proper like, oh, this is a wild card. Like, why have they picked this? <laughs> why have they picked this guy? Like, there's so there are other more established options. You know, he's an F2 rookie. He's a bit all over the place. One weekend he's brilliant, the next weekend he's a bit average, or he's made a mistake, or had an accident, sure. or, or or something. Um, 
but the raw talent was kind of like this is this is fun like it's it's kind of like it's kind of like a um like a late like a late draft pick like a rookie quarterback who suddenly comes uh-huh. in sort of halfway through the season because like the main the main quarterback and his backup have both both been injured and suddenly the guys you know throwing hail marys and like for fun it, it kind of feels <laughs> like that it's like okay there were two three other drivers that williams wanted couldn't get sergeants come in right let's see what he's made of and i remember being in the um like the mix zone after um qualifying i think it was um so the way it works in f1 is um the drivers finish qualifying in the race they go over to this mix zone they do a lap of the tv cameras they go to like 10, 12, 14 different TV cameras. And then they come over to us in the sort of like written media pen and then just chat to us for a a few minutes as well. And and we're waiting for a few of the drivers and you can see Logan's there. And I overheard two journalists basically saying like, oh, he did. I didn't realise he was, I didn't really think he was that good. Like that's genuinely Mm. surprised me. And I was just like, yeah, because like no one pays attention to what they're doing (laughs) before they come to Formula One. But he Mm -hmm. was just... You know, I'm not going to say like he had like a stunning debut and like it's just like, sure. oh, this guy's like a future world champion. Look at that. That was so special. But it was just, it was faultless. Um, in terms of big mistakes, it was it was, it was was faultless. And he did, mm-hmm. uh, it was perfectly fast on in, in, in qualifying, compared really well to Alex Albon, who's a great benchmark. And then in the race, did a really solid job in the race. Just laid a really solid foundation for a rookie season. And for someone who can't come into F1, you know, with a with a modest amount of F1 testing experience, one year in F2, you know, less prepared than a lot of people that come into F1. And with a bit less of a reputation, a bit less hype around him, I kind of thought, mm-hmm. oh, good for you, man, because that car did not look fun to drive in testing. And I thought he was in for an absolute pounding this year just because <laughs> of the circumstances. So to see him get off on the right foot, it was just nice. Like, you don't want to see a, a young kid who's fulfilling his dream come in and have an absolute horror show. Totally. I'm you know, not to be all American about it, but I'm, I'm very excited to see what he does in, in Saudi Arabia this year. Obviously, you know, we'll have less experience on this track than in Bahrain where, you know, they did testing and and have spent a lot of time, but I, yeah, I'm excited to see what he can do with the car, excited to see how he continues to compare to Alex Albon and to see what that development ends up looking like. I think, you know, this year's rookie class is very exciting and it would be fun you know, if he continues to do well and can kind of, you know, be up there with Piastri and Nick DeVries, I think that would be very exciting. Um, yeah, should we get into Saudi Arabia and, and the actual race? Yeah, <laughs> we might as well. <laughs> we might as well. Um, so yeah, kind of a, a weird, uh, maybe potentially tense return to Saudi Arabia this year after, as you said, everything that happened last year, just minutes into the opening free practice session when there was a missile strike at an oil depot a few miles away from the track. You know, scary just watching from here with all the, you know, big plumes of smoke and hearing about the drivers and and F1 having lots of meetings about whether to continue, whether to uh, boycott the rest of the race. I'm sure being on the ground there was quite a bit more intense. But it seems that Saudi Arabia has spent the last year trying to reassure drivers and F1 at large that it will be safe this time around. Um, Various meetings in Austria and Singapore between the country's minister of sport and F1 drivers and officials. There are reportedly some increased security measures happening this year to try and try and keep the track and, and everyone involved safe. But what is the feeling there I guess this week, how do drivers seem to feel about returning to the race this year? And and w- what does it look like, I guess, 
this time around? So I think the I think the assurances about safety off track have been they were paramount. Like from the moment it happened last year, it was very much a case of I think everybody knew that we would be forced basically into continuing the weekend, like one way or another. So sure. it was all about just making sure that their voices were heard so that they did a better job for, for this year and, and put things in place. So there's a lot that's happened. I mean, obviously, a lot of the details are being kept confidential because they don't want to make sure that all of their safety protocols are sort of out there for everybody to be aware of and then potentially manipulate or take advantage of. But mm-hmm. it's, there's, there's, there's loads of stuff, you know, there's extra police presence on site. Um, as I understand it, there's... Um, you know, these crazy complicated ways that they protect the airspace around the venue. I understand that that is beefed up and was already kind of like pretty impressive. Like the way it was described mm-hmm. to me last year was just because they could accurately target and hit an oil depot a few kilometers away doesn't mean that they would actually have been able to get through the, you know, quote unquote safety net that exists in the air and the sky around the circuit. So even if they okay. had fired a missile, it would have been intercepted or whatever. So mm-hmm. I think all of that has helped the drivers from an off-track perspective. I think I can't speak for like the other people that are here. Um, would, would, would I be here if I sort of didn't have to be here? Probably not. Like It wasn't the sure. nicest experience if, of my life when I was here a year ago. It's the weirdest atmosphere I've ever felt in a racing paddock. Um, lots of people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be just like, I just want to get home. Like, I don't don't want Mm -hmm. to be here the rest of the weekend. And it was quite, you know, a twisted way, like kind of nice because everyone's having just like this really frank, open conversation. People like aren't afraid to say, I'm actually a bit scared by this or a bit uneasy. But it is what it is. Like we're we're, we're back. And um, I think the off-track stuff is about as secure as you can be made to feel. Um, Mm -hmm. There are certainly, you know, worse threats that, that, that could exist and we're not exposed to anything like that. On track's really interesting because this track's obviously just unique. It's I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like well, you pay enough money, then the usual FIA safety guidelines don't really apply to you because you can build this super <laughs> fast, crazy circuit in between concrete walls with no visibility. So <laughs> that was kind of mad, um, and a lot of the drivers were unhappy um, with you know the the sight lines through the corners, and if if there was like this big crash, then you know would you actually be able to um, get back into would you be able to get out of it and avoid an accident or would would it just snowball and you just end up having this enormous shunt they couldn't make too many changes between the first Saudi race and the second one because they were only a few months apart but there's been you know a full 12 months this time so certain barriers have been moved and little parts reprofiled, curbs redone so the track itself is a bit less needlessly dangerous it's still pretty intense um, but I think on track, it's a sort of still an amazing spectacle to watch, but just less of a needless risk for the drivers. I'll be very interested to see how those changes play out this week. Um, and what overall do you see as a kind of being most important at this track? Is it something like tire deg, like in Bahrain, kind of managing tires? Is it showing off pure pace? What has been a successful strategy in Saudi Arabia in the past? Well, this track's produced two two good races actually um, in in its history, and the 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 layout is so interesting and unique from a street racing point of view. So you need to have a car that is good on the brakes, good through the corners, decent on traction as well, because there are a couple of points where you need to plant the throttle as committed as you can. 
but top speed's really important as well. So it 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 really it really is unique. Um not really sure this is um this isn't a tire deg race like Bahrain is, for example, where the the rear the the, the rear tire is taking absolute beating and everything's just quite contained. I think you need a bit more of a all all rounder of uh, of a car at this one. Um, so I would still expect Red Bull to be um, very very strong. Uh, I don't really just see any particular weaknesses in that package. We talked touched on earlier. Ferrari could should be a little bit closer as a result of the characteristics of this circuit and where the potential strengths of the car lie, and it does, maybe not exposing the weaknesses so much. Um, the, the real unknowns, I think, are where Aston Martin and Mercedes shake out. Because if Aston Martin, for example, if that if the the trump card for the Aston is its tire management, that won't really play out as favourably as it, it here as it did in Bahrain, for for example. So if the raw pace isn't there for the Aston, they'll qualify third fastest maybe of the teams, but they won't necessarily overhaul Ferrari in the race because that that, that race pace offset won't won't be as as dramatic. So I'd be surprised if there is a huge shift in the pecking order from Bahrain, but maybe we'll see the gaps compress and then that could create room for a, a little bit of a, a shift. I am optimistic. I know I said earlier that the first race kind of confirmed our worst in, worst uh, hopes or fears for um, this season with how easily Verstappen won, but this isn't Bahrain. This is a different track. It has produced two good races in the past and also... Boring season openers historically haven't been the the total prediction or precursor for for the year that that followed. So fingers crossed, glass half full kind of outlook for this. The the Jeddah is the is the race that sort of sparks F one twenty twenty three into life. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us and for all of your insights. Thanks as always to Erica Cervantes for the production help, and thanks to you all for listening. This has been the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. We will be back on Sunday after the Saudi Arabia Grand Prix. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.